pray, Lord, that we'd be captivated by your truth. Lord, we thank you. You've given us your revelation. Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would give me the ability to express it accurately. And Lord, I pray you would do what I could never do on my own. I pray you would touch lives through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, open up to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been talking about implications of the gospel, gospel implications, how the truth of the gospel steers us in the way that we're to live and, and what we need or in desperate need of is to daily ponder, reflect, meditate. You could use a phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. It doesn't negate the, the necessity or the need for preaching, but what it does remind us is, is that we often get our mindset in a framework that's unhealthy and unbiblical and ungodly. And what we desperately need is, is to be recalibrated and we need to live out of what God says is true of us in Christ. Anybody this week um, had to reflect and meditate on what is really true and what the Bible says is true in Christ? Anybody in here? I pray that, that as we go through this, that that becomes a habit, that that becomes an exercise of our life because that's what we're in need of daily. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning so much we're going to look at. We're going to look at a, a message entitled, Living as a New Creation. Living as a New Creation. And it's going to be a really simple outline, but just to sort of give you a sense of where we're headed and where we're going. We're going to see the truth, the impact, and the ministry. The truth of, of being a new creation. The impact of being a new creation. And the ministry of one who now is a new creation. That's what we're going to do, and, and, and as we get started, let's look at the truth, and, and I promise you, uh, as much as I've enjoyed doing this series, uh, I, I like being in a book, and I like uh, anchoring somewhere, but I learned this many years ago, uh, really, there, there's nothing unbiblical about topical preaching. The goal of topical preaching is to be expository, and what I mean by that is, is when you look at any passage in the Bible, the danger of topical teaching is when you take that text out and create a, a whole nother premise than what the author of the, of the book is saying. So like, it, it, it's fine to preach topically. The goal, though, is that when you preach topically, you, you share it in such a way that it's consistent with the context of that actual passage. That is uh, what we're after here. But I'll be glad to land back in a book because uh, there's just so many protections when you're doing that. And uh, you realize that as you go through something like this. But, but this summer has been a, a blessing to my soul in just thinking through, okay, day by day, what does the truth of the gospel mean for me? How am I to live in light of what God has done for me in Christ? And how does that affect my life? How does it affect the way I'm looking at my circumstances? Because those things have a way of popping up every day. They pop up all the time, don't they? And I don't care if you responded to the one that happened last Thursday the right way. You're tempted when one pops up this afternoon at 2 o'clock to respond a different way. And you're constantly needing to ponder and meditate and chew on the truth of what God has said in Christ. 
And, and apart from that, we find ourselves so often, and again, all of this is only possible by the grace of the Spirit. It's only possible as the Spirit guides and leads. But as we do this, I pray that you would be encouraged. 2 Corinthians 5, the truth of being a new creation in Christ, living as a new creation, the truth of this. And, and this comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that in, in many ways has been responding to his first letter. And we see the joy of, of people that are marked and changed by the word of God. It's encouraging because we're all in process and the only way that we make it to the end, and the only way that you see anything good come out of me, the only way that I see anything good come out of you is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit that's working in our lives, that's growing us. And, and Paul here in 2 Corinthians is writing, and you talk about a man who's constantly, I, you know, a lot of times as a minister, you hear about, uh, I hear about, you know, ministers going through burnout. And uh, there's a high percentage. Well, if there's anybody that would have been a candidate for burnout, in our mindset, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went. And, and now he's writing 2 Corinthians, and there's a contingency that is out to undermine him yet again. And they're basically giving all this garbage to the people of Corinth. And, and Paul, in many parts of this, he is sharing with them and basically saying, look, I, I'm, I don't have to commend myself. God's called me. God's grace speaks for itself. But, but let me share with you how I'm processing all of this. And he's sharing. You get a real window into his heart and into his life. Because there's people within that congregation that have come in and basically they knew that in order to be heard, they had to undermine him. In order to be heard, in order to gain an audience, they needed to rip apart his ministry. And Paul is writing, and he's sharing to them his life, his, and he's calling them to godliness. And we see so many different parts of this. But the passage in 2 Corinthians 5, the very likely is you're familiar with, I'll start reading in verse 16. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though... We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so many times when we read the scripture, we come across passages that are so clear in stating what has happened to us because of Jesus Christ. Those that have trusted him by grace through faith. What takes place in the life of an individual who looks to Christ, believes on him by grace through faith, trust in his work and not their own. We see the reality here. It may be one of those refrigerator verses that you have on your refrigerator. If so, it's a really good one. 
But he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And I'll be honest with you, I've been sharing this with you as we looked at Ephesians, Philippians, that so much of living out of gospel implications is living out of the right identity. Living not out of an identity of, who I, of what I do for a living, of uh, if you're in high school or college, of who you date, that, that can become your identity. Uh, it could be your identity of how much money you're making. Uh, it could be your identity of how good you are at athletics. Do you sit the bench or do you start? Are you up at the front of the pack of the running or are you in the back? So many things are tempted, and it doesn't stop, young people, when you get older. It's, it, you can get to be a pastor at 49, and you're tempted to make your identity how big your congregation is. You're tempted to make your identity how much influence you perceive that you have. You're tempted to make your identity all kinds of things. But ultimately, for the Christian, the only way that you can find true satisfaction, that you can have true understanding of life, is to recognize your identity is in Jesus Christ. And so 2 Corinthians 5, every time in the past, most of the times in the past, when I've looked at this verse, my heart has been so interested in rejoicing in the reality that we are new creations. That I've, I promise you, I believe it or I mean, not believe it or not, but I was pretty amazed. I really have not even, I've missed one of the other multiple in Christ references. I'm so excited about the new creation. I didn't read the first part of the verse. I've read it and I've mentioned it, but that's not where my heart resonated before. And it's, it's a mistake. But look what he says. Therefore, if any man, anyone is what? In Christ, in Christ, and, and, and again, I, I want to remind you of the necessity of this term. Paul uses it over 200 times, and he uses variations of this. He uses it in, in ways to express the reality of who Christ is in our life, that we are in him, that he is in us. 216 times in Christ, in him, in the Lord. And, and again, what does that mean? We are now in Christ. I remember when I lived in Portland, uh, one of my buddies had a, a, his family. He married into a family that, that had a lot of money. And, um, and they had a timeshare at Whistler. And Whistler was, you know, up in British Columbia. It, it, you go, if you're in Portland, you got to go north through Seattle about three hours. And then you got another two to three hours hit the Canadian border. And then you go on up into British Columbia. And Whistler is like, a skier's dream. It is, uh, it's, 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 it's on two different mountains, Blackcomb and Whistler. And we went up, and I remember they were like, no one ever stops you at the border. You just go right through. They just basically wave you through, and you show them something, your passport, and you go on. Well, they stopped my car, and they searched it. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, what's going on? What are they doing? And, and they searched my car. But, but it was fascinating because every time I've been out of the country and I've traveled a lot, uh, I've never driven out of America. Well, one time we did. We drove from uh, Albuquerque down into Mexico. But, but, but at this point in my life, I'd never driven out of the U.S. into another country. And I went from being in America to being in Canada. I was in America under a sphere of laws under a sphere of jurisdiction, and I left. And, and literally, when I went through 
there was literally a point where I crossed over, and now, regardless of my citizenship, I am now in Canada, right? Not in America. I want you to think of that because while that analogy breaks down in some ways, I want you to think of the fact that before Christ, everyone in this world is in Adam. You're in Adam. You operate under a mindset. You operate under a spiritual realm. And that's something that we often don't think about. We think about, are you a Christian? Or are you not a Christian? But if you're in Adam, you could read passages in Pauline literature, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, where he speaks about, in the Bible, he speaks about that in Adam we are alienated. We are enemies of God. We are not friends of God. We are ignorant. We are hardened. We have so many different, and, and we live not out of a desire to follow the will of God. We live out of a desire to follow our flesh. We live out of a desire to follow the lust that we have. Sometimes I think that I've lost sight of all reality when I respond to the way the world reacts in shock. Theologically, would it make sense for those in America who don't know Christ to desire to follow the will and the ways of God? No. Theologically, what do we understand? It's interesting because if we operate out of a lens of the Scripture, we say, wait a minute, people that don't know God, who haven't been reconciled to God, they operate out of enmity towards God. They operate not, of, not out of a desire to follow the ways and the will of God, but more out of a desire to fulfill their own pleasure. So it should not surprise us when people, when, we, when we're walking literally in like, you know, 100 miles an hour into a sexual revolution, should that be surprising when we look at Ephesians 4? Should that be surprising when we read Colossians 3? No, I mean, this is the framework. I can't remember the exact quote, but... The, the gentleman that uh, in church history that basically said, look, you know, put me underground and put me in a dungeon, give me a candle, give me a Bible, and I can tell you one thing, when I come out, I can tell you down in that dungeon what the world's doing while I'm in the dungeon. Why? Because he had a sense of reality through the lens that God reveals in his word. It helps us understand people. It helps us understand why they do what they do. It helps us understand why is the world the way it is. But for those in Christ Jesus, we have gone from being in Adam, we have now gone to being in Christ. And how does he describe this? He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen to this beautiful summary. One commentator said, in Christ summarizes the profound truth that believers are now and forever in an unbreakable, irrevocable, indissoluble, that's a hard word to say for me, spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it goes on, indeed, considering the prevalence of in Christ and its synonyms in Paul's writings, this mysterious spiritual truth is surely one of the most significant teachings in the New Testament. This morning, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Are you in Adam this morning? It could be that one of the reasons why you get nothing out of preaching and nothing out of the things of God is that your mind has never bowed before Christ.
that you've never come into a different realm spiritually. And the only way to enter that new realm, I drove from Canada or America to Canada. The only way to enter this new realm is by grace through faith. It's believing in what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's by trusting in that. And for the believer, he, they are now in Christ. And what, are they, what does he refer to them as? He is a new creation. The word here means qualitatively brand new. Isn't it crazy? I was watching something the other day, and I was watching the old dial phones. You know, the ones where you have to literally dial it all the way around. And, and, and I, I remember uh, a funny video. They took a kid, 14, 15, and they put him in a room, and they gave him one of those. And they said, all right, dial this number. And he literally looked like he was going to cry. He had no concept. He was looking at this, this strange contraption, you know, from Mars. Like, what is this? And what am I supposed to do with it, right? Well, we all laugh at that if we're above 35, 40 years old, maybe younger than that. But we, we go, no. But then think about it. Then we got really big time in like around 1988, 89. My dad was one of the cool ones who had one of those phones that looked like an FBI phone. It looked like it was about this big, huge, a bag phone or something, I think they called it. And I remember one night, I was with Mickey Hamill. I knew him when he was under 18, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And uh, I was with Mickey and a bunch of friends in my dad's Suburban, and we were on that bag phone, and we had to, Mickey had to call his dad, Wally, Mr. Hamill. And we called him, and years later, he said, boys, I listened to y'all's whole conversation that night. You forgot to hang up the phone. <laughs> well, one reason they listened to it, because it was hard to hang up that huge phone. It was massive, but think about it. What if you could have gone back into 1972 and handed somebody an iPhone 13? It would have been qualitatively brand stinking new, spaceship kind of stuff, right? They would have been as confused going as we would be going backwards, the kids today. They would have been looking at that like, how in the world is this even humanly possible? That's the word here, qualitatively brand new. It's not comparing something similar. It's comparing something radically different. If anyone is in Christ, in Jesus Christ, he is a new creation, qualitatively brand new. And then he says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I want today to consider, and we're going to do this quick, because if not, we'd be here through the afternoon. I want us to see not only the truth, the truth, that's the truth. How does that truth impact a man in real time? How does that truth impact the Apostle Paul? And how does it guide us to understand the ministry of those now in Christ? What is the impact? Well, in order to do this, we've got to do a really quick overview of these first five chapters. And we don't have a lot of time to go in depth, but I want us to just get a sense of this. What were the ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changed the apostle Paul. How did it take place? I tell you, uh, I, it's not just the South. It's anywhere it's a temptation. But having been someone who was born in Mississippi, grew up in Chattanooga, and now has lived in Alabama longer than any place that I've been previously, I think that we can all recognize, because we've seen it in ourselves. we've seen... A, uh, people who profess the name of Jesus Christ, 
who adapt to a formal religious posture when it comes to the things of God in the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? They say the right thing. They believe in the Bible. They believe in Jesus. But really, at this point, it's almost like, okay, there's news I've believed. I had a response, and now there's rules, and there's a way you're to live. And and, and it's sort of like this uh, dull, mundane disposition towards these new set of beliefs. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. I pray today that as we look at a man that was impacted by the gospel, that you'd be captivated. You'd be captivated to see the reality of what it looks like in real time when gospel truths actually affect the here and now. They affect the way you process. They affect the way you look at life. And thanks be to God, because there's believers in Christ Jesus, thankfully, in this room. And I pray that the majority in here are. Thankfully, that, that is the experience you're growing in, that you're coming to understand. You're living and you're looking at life in light of what the truth of the gospel is. But let's look at a few of them. In chapter 1, you could go to chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And we got to move a little bit here because uh, we need to... We've got some ground to cover. In, in chapter 1, he, he's writing to these people that he loves and adores. He says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. One of the impacts that you could find, and you could come up with more than what I'm going to give you in this, this point here this morning, is that the outlook of the gospel, it, it changed his outlook on his afflictions. It changed his outlook on his afflictions. We don't know exactly what happened here. We know that Paul said, remember, he'd been through everything. Shipwrecks, beatings, torture, I mean, you name it. He was hungry, all kinds of stuff. But here in this specific one, most people agree that we don't specifically know what he's speaking of. We know it was bad. It appears they knew about it. But what does he say? What does he say about all of this? He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What a perspective. How many times have we all been tempted to grow cold or grow hard or bitter when we go through something that's hard? You may be here this morning and you're facing something and you just you're, you're, it's a shock to you. You don't understand why the Lord has brought it into your path. And in your flesh, you're tempted to be resentful. Here we see an illustration of an individual in real time who through the promises and through the goodness and through the reality of what God had done for him in Christ, it changed his outlook as to how he saw his suffering. And what does he say? He goes, that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. And then notice what he says at the end of that phrase, who raises the dead. The one who raises the dead is the God who can fix the impossible. He's the God who 
gives us surety in our future. And Paul does something similar than he does in 2 Timothy 4. You remember when um, he, he's at his last uh, tribunal hearing before Nero in 2 Timothy 4, and he says, at my, at, my, at my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be held against them. And then he says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And he says, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. And then he continues to go down in 2 Timothy 4, and he says, the Lord will deliver me. And people often say, well, I don't know if he was delivered because it's right after 2 Timothy that he was killed. But Paul had a theology of deliverance that went way beyond the physical and the temporal. His ultimate understanding of deliverance was that God would be faithful to deliver him to his heavenly home. Let's look at another one, though. If you go over to chapter 2, look at his outlook on those who had hurt him. It appears there's debate here about whether or not what is mentioned in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians verses 5 through 11 is speaking about the immoral man that went through discipline in 1 Corinthians, or if this is speaking about one of the individuals who was causing him grief, undermining his ministry. Regardless of which one it was, don't focus so much on that, but focus on the reality. I think it's the one who's causing him grief, one of the people. There's others, but I think it's one of the ones. And what does he say in this passage? He says in verse 7, speaking of the individual that they had exercised discipline on, he says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I love this. Here's a man that very likely, if this is a situation I'm thinking it is, he very likely was wounded by this individual. Do you like it when people speak about you? Do you like it when they rip you apart behind your back? Do you like it when they ridicule? You know, it's, what's, the, what's the easier thing to do in our flesh? If I see you at Walmart and you're talking about me, I look at you and I go down the cereal aisle. I don't go your aisle. But what does he say here? The gospel of Jesus Christ had softened this man. You, you remember in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever noticed that that beatitude comes before blessed are the merciful? The only people that show mercy are people who've experienced a brokenness and a bankrupt spirit where they've received the mercy of Christ. And that gives them the ability in Jesus Christ, by his grace, to then show mercy to others. You see it in chapter 2, 5 through 11. You see in this passage his outlook on a sinner in the congregation who appears to have repented and how he wants to show him mercy and acceptance and compassion. How is that possible? Because he's living out of the implications of what is true for him in Christ. Let's look at another change of his outlook after he came to know Christ. His outlook on his ministry in chapter 3, verse 1, even as he's being criticized, he says in verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then he speaks in verses 2 and 3 that they are the letters that are not written with ink, but written by the Spirit of God on their hearts. And then look what he does in verse 4 and 5. Such is the confidence 
that we have through Christ towards God. And then look at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. His outlook on his ministry wasn't look at me. It wasn't like, you know, let me flex on you and show you how powerful I am and show you what a great minister I am. I get these cards sometimes, or I used to, from people that do revivals, and they'd almost give their revival stats. It's like, you know, I average uh, 37 conversions and 14 baptisms. It's like, well, this is bizarre, you know? Nine assists and three turnovers and 26 points a game. And it almost comes across like, hey, look at, look at what I got going on here. You bring me in. Paul would say, no, my confidence is not in myself. My confidence is in God. And I'll tell you something, that has to change because what are we tempted to do? Where is your confidence this morning? Where's your confidence? Are you confident because you lead a company? Are you confident because what you put your mind to, you work hard and perform? Are you confident because you're a hard worker? You get up at 4.30, you put in a hard day's work, you go to bed, you fulfilled all your to-do list, you're a good Christian woman, a good Christian man. You're missing the whole point of Christianity if that's your mentality. Because Paul had been so captivated by the gospel of Jesus that it had changed him to see his sufficiency and his confidence was in Christ. We go to chapter 3, verse 7, and down to verse 12, and he's speaking of this ministry, but now look at his outlook on his hope. In verse 12, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The older I get, I'm realizing something that I, never, I would never have recognized in my 30s and even in my early 40s is that so often my responses to things in life are a barometer of my hope and where it's placed. And when my hope is placed on the things of this world, as, as, as one commentator, writer I really love says, the hopes that are placed in this world never deliver, and they always disappoint. But by the grace of God, he gives us outlook. He gives us hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of despair. I mean, you, you could be writing these down, but you could come up with your own list if you go through this. His outlook on hope would be number four. Number five, you could continue. I, I covered it in number three, his outlook on ministry. But you see a little bit more of his outlook on ministry as you move into chapter four. Look what he does. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I tell you, if you're struggling with losing heart, if you're struggling with uh, despair, discouragement this morning, I want to encourage you. Run to the truth of the grace in Jesus Christ. Reflect and meditate and prayerfully consider what God has done for you and pray and ask God through the working of His Spirit that you would experience hope, that you would experience encouragement, and that you wouldn't lose heart. I tell you, losing heart is a bad thing. Paul was going through all kinds of stuff. So many times when he writes a letter, he's in prison. He's been, you know, spit, up, spit out, chewed up, you know, pushed down. 
It's almost like, I tell you, I can, I can mope and be like, oh, things aren't fair. People are mean. You know, that, you know, this is wrong. Have you ever done that? It's like you throw a pity party, no one shows up but yourself. And yet, what do you find? He, he, he was a man, and I tell you the secret of this is what he says in Philippians 1, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He was a man that his outlook changed because of what God had done. It changed how he looked at weariness. It changed how he looked at despair. We've got to keep going. Look at, uh, again, look at chapter uh, 4, verse 7. His outlook on his own ability. In verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I love that. He, he, he understood it wasn't his ability. He was an earthen vessel. He was a jar of clay. And, and, and he knew that the power and the sufficiency of Christ would fill him and empower him to do what he was called to do. That was what drove him. I tell you, at, at youth camp, we talked about what does it mean to walk with God? We looked at Enoch, the three guys in the Old Testament that were told to have walked with God. You know, Adam and Eve, they, they were in the garden in that sense of walking with God. But after the fall, you've got Enoch, you've got Noah and Abraham. Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, what does it mean to walk with God? Well, I'll tell you one thing it does involve. It involves taking all of your responses in your life right now, taking all of your outlook, taking all of your perspective, and laying it at the feet or in the foot of the Word of God and saying, Lord, how does your truth give me the response you desire? You can't walk with God apart from that attitude and that mentality because life will give you temptations You'll be tempted to be conformed to this world. You've got, but then in chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 5, verse 10, his outlook on the temporary and his outlook on the eternal. This is amazing. He gets into verse uh, 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Do you realize that um, sometimes I think, you know, like as I'm praying, and I'm like, what would be the, the greatest thing that you could walk in and live out of daily? It wouldn't be a billion dollars. It wouldn't be uh, a life free of sickness. But I think about, Lord, by your grace, can I walk with such a deep, confident assurance and understanding and hope in your promises? Because in that reality, there is nothing that can touch it if you're confident that Jesus Christ is able to raise your body from the dead, you don't fear death. If you're confident that Christ sees all and rectifies all wrongs, you're not worried about the criticism you'll get in sharing the gospel to people that will persecute you. You you begin to live differently. And here he even gets into this section in chapter 4, 14, into chapter 5, and he speaks about these, these tents that we're in. He speaks about in verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I tell you, that's good news. I never knew what my dad was talking about when I was a teenager, 
And he said, I'm looking in the mirror and it's depressing. (laughs) My body's wasting away. And it doesn't look better than it did five years ago. And it sure doesn't look better than 10 years ago. Anybody else understand what I'm saying? But yeah, there we go. Danny raised his hand. I love it. But you know what? Here's the hope for the Christian. If you don't live out of the hope that God gives in his word, you're going to hit a certain point in life and it's going to be all downhill. Oh, I miss the glory days. I miss the days of this and that. But for Paul, he's like, not on your life. This outer man's wasting away. But God is doing a work inwardly. I'm being renewed day by day. And he even said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Something had happened over the last few days, and I was discouraged by something, not in a long sense of time, but, you know, you can can sort of just get in a little bit of a funk, and you're thinking weird. And it's crazy because as I was studying this, I found myself going, wait a minute. That's not true. Wait a minute. I've got hope. Wait a minute. The future's bright. Wait a minute. Look at all that I have in Jesus. And that's exactly what I'm speaking of when we're talking about pondering and reflecting and chewing on the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, I've got good news for you. You know, like uh, often we have the ability to check the weather now every, you know, six minutes. And uh, you can be like, oh, no, the next week's 40%, 60%. I mean, we all become meteorologists. But isn't it nice to know that when we look at the future and the forecast, for those in Christ Jesus, it is sunny and bright and clear sailing for those in Jesus Christ. But I tell you what, if we lose sight of who we are in Christ, you see, this doesn't work. This doesn't work to the nominal Christian. Does that make sense? Nominal Christianity simply professes something and goes to church as a ritual. But there's not a sense of how the gospel affects day-to-day living. But for those in Christ Jesus, we are called to a different way. And we are called to the wonder and the awe and the encouragement that the grace of Jesus Christ brings us along. But... The part that I was going to focus the most time on, I'm going to finish at the end. I'd say I got so excited about the impacts. Look at the impact of a guy and how it affected his evangelism. You see, we could just roll this one into into the impacts, number two. Number three is ministry. The truth, the impact, the ministry. Look at what he does. How many of you have grown up with an evangelism-type mentality that was driven by guilt, that was driven by duty only, that was driven by church growth desires, pack the pew. We're gonna, and I'm not saying those things are wrong or motivated by anybody sinful. I'm just saying that there's been times in my life that I completely misconstrued what evangelism was all about as a Christian. And it became more guilt. It became more what I wasn't doing. It became more something I was supposed to do, only we are supposed to do it because it's a command of God, but that's not where it ends. Because what we see in this man is somebody captivated by the love of God in Jesus Christ 
that compels him out of the implications of what God has done for a heart for the world. This morning, have you lost sight of that? Have you lost sight of that? Look what he does, and, and I'm not going to keep you here till two. But look what he does. I just wrote down a few. It goes back into verse, uh, into verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. And that fear of the Lord flows out of what? The reality in verse 10, that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not a judgment of condemnation, a judgment of rewards. But Paul is so moved and so driven by, by the holy fear of who God is. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. There's one right there. Go into verse 14. You get into verse 14 and you really get a sense of what's going on. What is motivating his evangelism as an apostle? What is motivating? It's not simply this is my job description. This is what I'm supposed to do. You're a fireman. I'm an apostle. Apostles evangelize. You know, Uh, you're an accountant. You do taxes. April 15th. I'm supposed to evangelize the church. I mean, you know, those that are coming into the church. No, what does he say in verse 14? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. And look what he says, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For Paul, freedom wasn't the freedom to do what you want. It was the power to do as you should. It was the power to be compelled and motivated by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he was a man, this passage in verse 14 and 15, speaking about substitution, it's speaking about that the, the, the miracle of, of being in Christ He's speaking of those in Christ. The, the, all he's speaking of here in this context is clearly, I think, speaking of those that have trusted Christ, those that are in him. He died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves but for him. Look at verse 16, another one. From now on, therefore, we regard, we regard, this changed his thought processes. No one according to the flesh. This morning, do you regard people according to the flesh? You know what that means? You're, in, you're impressed with people who look good, who have nice cars, who are talented, who are capable. That's judging people according to the flesh. And I'll tell you, Christian teenagers here, one of the ways you can shine as a light for the gospel is that every kid in your junior high and high school that doesn't know Christ is incapable of only, they're only going to judge according to the flesh. And what does that mean? They're going to be kids that are eaten up with wanting to be around the right people that on the surface and on the external offer something. But what is this here? Paul says, not me. Not because of what Christ has done. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Why? Because God had given him discernment and wisdom to see the real need in people. And the real need in people wasn't some type of like conforming to the externals. It was the need to be made right with God in Jesus Christ. That was their real need. He says, I don't care about the outsides. He goes on. What does he say in verse 18? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? Reconciled means to go from being enemies to friends. And, and how does that take place? It's by grace through faith, depending on Christ. It's believing on Jesus. Jesus says you got to come like a little child. A little child believing in Christ, trusting in him, believing on him. And what happens? When, when you believe by grace through faith, mysteriously, supernaturally, you are brought from the country of being in Adam, and you are placed into a new sphere. You are now in Christ Jesus. And now the reality of that reconciliation for Paul was helping him understand what God intended for him. God had revealed to him as an apostle that he had given him the ministry of reconciliation. And then look what verse 19 says. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And look at the next one. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I love this. Uh, He speaks about the attitude and the language of a bond slave. He's compelled by God's love. He wants to live not for himself, but for the will of the one who saved him. He desires now to regard not according to fleshly means. He now desires to implore. He's an ambassador. You know what it means to to be an ambassador? I was reading this from a gentleman named Dave Guzik. He said, an ambassador does not speak to please his audience, but the king who sent him. An ambassador does not speak on his own authority, his own opinions, or or demands mean little. He simply says what he has been commissioned to say. An ambassador is more than a messenger. He is also a representative. And the honor and reputation of his country are in his hands. As we wrap it up this morning, I want to read you 1 Peter 2, 9. It reminds me of what you see the Apostle Peter say. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Paul was captivated by the gospel. Evangelism, missions, outreach was not just a duty. It was not just a task. It was an overflow of a heart that had been changed by the grace of Christ. He was captivated. It wasn't just something to get done. It was literally living out of the implications of what God had done for him in Christ. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're like, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, I'll be honest with you. I have gotten so caught up lately into all that I've got to do in July and all that's going on this weekend and all that's going to happen with the kids at school and all that's going to take place in September that I have lost sight of every spiritual reality I could look at you and say, I understand. But this morning, it's the Spirit of God who's faithful in our hearts and lives. He uses His Word to renew our minds. He uses His truth to give us strength in the way we process. And now, this morning, would you pray with me? Oh God, 
would you give me an outlook, including my outlook on evangelism, that flows out of the goodness of your grace and what you have done for me? That's my prayer for all of us today, is that we just lay our, open up our hands and say, God, would you expose me? Would you show me? But I'll tell you what, it's the kindness of God that leads a man to repentance. And praise be to God that today, you know, we, we think about freedom. We think about July the 4th. But I'll tell you, freedom is walking in Christ Jesus. Freedom is living out of the truth that we've been set free in Christ. And so, friends, today as we close, you may be with us and you're thinking, man, I I don't know Christ. I don't know him. I can't live out of the implications of something I've never even trusted. I want to encourage you today. It's not a mistake that you're here today. God knows exactly why you're here, and he's brought you here. And today, just as we've learned in the book of Hebrews, we can't play around with the voice of God. God speaks in his word. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if God speaks into your heart, believe on Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Cry out to him for forgiveness. Remember the, the Pharisee in the temple? I mean, not the Pharisee. He was the, the Pharisee and, the, and the, the tax collector. And the tax collector couldn't even look up, but he said, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the heart of crying out to Christ. So today, whatever it may be, let's bow our heads. Let's thank God for what he's done for us in Christ. Let's pray that it would change the way we look at life. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the privilege and the opportunity to be here today. God, thank you for giving me the health to stand here and preach. And, oh, God, I pray that, Lord, I pray we'd be captivated by the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I pray, Lord, it would would take such a hold of our hearts, Lord, that we would be quick to confess and repent of thought patterns that go against the truth of, of who we are and what we have in Jesus. I pray, oh God, that that we would would grow in this reality. Lord, thank you for your servant, Paul, and thank you how he is an example of your grace and how, Lord, you, you captivated this man. You changed his heart. And, Lord, I pray that we would learn from him. Lord, we would submit to you. And, Lord, today, whether it's future fear, whether it's circumstances, whether it's people, whether it's self-confidence, whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that we would lay those things down and we would have an outlook, Lord, that, that, that is changed by your grace. And Lord, I pray that we would be so captivated by this message of grace in Christ that, Lord, we would follow you in sharing your word to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Land is going-